0: Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer.
1: Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. This week's episode is was actually recorded live at the AFPM International Petrochemical Conference at the end of March. And our focus for this week is a panel discussion that was on partnering in plastic circularity, featuring four leaders from across the industry. My guests today include Dave Andrew, who is the Vice President of New Market Development for ExxonMobil Product Solutions Company. Dave has been actively involved in ExxonMobil's sustainability efforts since 2017, and in his current role, he is responsible for strategic business development, including circularity and plastic waste advanced recycling, developing new high-value product platforms, and really focusing on any and all sustainability-driven business opportunities. My next guest is Bill Cooper. Bill is the Senior Vice President of Corporate Strategy and Development at Cyclics where he heads strategy, corporate initiatives, and business development. Cyclics, as you know, is really working to change the game in terms of plastics recycling and helping to create infrastructure and opportunities to support circularity. My next guest is Jeremy Wallach. Jeremy is a partner at McKinsey & Company in their Boston office. He leads the firm's work on chemicals and plastic sustainability in North America and including helping clients build businesses and evaluate opportunities in sustainable polymers. And last but not least is Gulai Sarhat, who is the Senior Vice President of Petrochemicals for BASF. Gulai was previously featured on the podcast, and we had a great conversation then. Today, she is bringing in her perspectives on BASF's innovation and focus around plastics and plastic circularity and really how they are partnering across their customer value chain. So listen in for a great conversation and about what companies and what we can do together to partner for plastic circularity.
2: Good afternoon and welcome back. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for what is sure to be a great lineup of panels. First off, I have the honor of introducing our first time uh, first time ever event here at IPC. An episode of the Chemical Show podcast will be recorded live on stage momentarily. The Chemical Show is a podcast that focuses on the business of chemicals. Today's discussion will include industry insiders talking about how they are partnering with consumer brands, recycling consortiums, and others in the plastic value chain who are working to accelerate a more circular economy for plastics. As a regular listener of The Chemical Show, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing this panel of experts discuss advances in recycling technologies, the challenges and opportunities that face the development of a circular economy for plastics, and how AFPM members are making the products that society needs in a more sustainable way. Please welcome our moderator, Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show, and business-to-business strategy and marketing expert and founder of Progressive Global. Dave Andrew, Vice President of New Market Development with ExxonMobil. Bill Cooper, Senior Vice President, Corporate Strategy and Development at Cyclix. And Gulai Serhat Kulu, Vice President or Senior Vice President of Performance Materials at BASF North America. And Jeremy Wallach, partner with McKinsey. Welcome our panelists and we look forward to a great conversation.
1: So we're here today to talk about partnering for plastic circularity. We've It's obviously a hot topic across the industry, and so we're gonna kinda go through a series of questions that really just help define what it is, how companies are approaching it, how we're partnering together, and what we can do as an industry. Jeremy, I'm gonna ask you to answer the first question, which is really, you know, we're using this term circular economy quite a bit, and I think not everybody's fully clear on what that is. So can you um, define circularity, and in particular for the plastics economy, and what that looks like?
3: Yeah, thanks, Victoria. Hello, everyone. Um, And and I I think I'm going to hit that in just a second, but I just wanted to remark, having been to a whole series of sessions here at AFPM IPC, every single session has touched on sustainability, and obviously this one as well. And, you know, I think the jumping off point that maybe we would all agree is plastics are essential to everyday life, to consumer goods, to food, to durables, to the energy transition, and yet we're all dealing with this issue around plastic waste. And I think that's some of the context. And w- within that, you know, I think we would define circularity as taking material, typically post-consumer, and reusing it, making it into new material. And, you know, I think the, the nuance there is increasingly the focus is on high-quality materials using it in packaging or using it in consumer durables and not so much as it was at one point off-grade flower pots and drainage pipes.
1: Mm, that's interesting. Any other comments from you guys? Are you seeing the same thing when you think about circularity? Mm, all right. <laughs> so so Dave, I'm I'm moving on to you. Has circularity changed the customer supplier relationship? when you're thinking about relationships in the value chain, how are you looking at that today?
4: Well, I don't think it's the customer-supplier relationship anymore. I think it's the customer-supplier-supplier-customer-supplier-customer relationship. You you really need to go back up the value chain and down the value chain, and I think that's the hallmark of a circular economy. You know, traditionally, uh, we sell our plastics to converters, very global in the Amcourse of the world, and they sell them onto the brands. And quite frankly, our relationship with the brands historically was you know, not as strong as it needs to be. The brands, you know, whether it be Procter Gamble or Unilever or Nestle, or Mars, we all know the, the list, they're the ones that are setting the demand for these circular products. And today, you know, that demand far exceeds the supply. And we need to understand. How they're going to represent circular products to their consumers, products that they need, uh, what certifications they need, and so that's introduced a, a whole new dialogue. But at the same time, we have got to figure out where the raw materials come from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I started my career, I don't, I didn't think I'd ever be talking to the waste management companies as a sort of source of feedstock, and yet we're doing that every day of the week now. And um, And so I think that's the, you know, the hallmark of this circular economy, new relationships popping up right across the value chain, you know, relationships that we didn't have to nurture before.
1: Interesting. Um, You know, and I think we're on a journey, right? So we've talked a little bit about the journey that we're on and that circularity is a journey. How far are we you know jeremy are we still at the beginning? have we do we have the map? Are we starting to make our our journey management plan um are we further down the pike? Where do you see this evolving in terms of of where we are
3: yeah and and I'm sure we'll all have different views you know i I think we might start with something like if you pick baseball, we're somewhere in the middle of the third inning you know I think we have a, a sense of what the game is I think we have a sense of the aspiration, uh, but there's a, a great deal more to do. And, you know, if you step back, you say sort of, what's clear? I think as a society, we've made a commitment to addressing this. Uh, you know, we've, we've, you've mentioned the brand owners, they've made commitments to using recycled content. We've seen a, a variety of governments make uh, commitments or requirements around recycled content. And, you know, at least from where we sit, consumers are starting to pay attention. I mean, I I go to the store, I notice when you see labels that say bottle is 100% recycled, that's part of the brand promise, it's creeping in. Um, You know, the economics have moved to a point where they're quite favorable. In a number of these spaces, we have premia that can be as high as 100% or more, just speaking to published data. Uh, We're seeing a lot of investment. Uh, By our count, we have announced advanced recycling capacity investment north of 4 million tons. Uh, And a little bit to Dave's point, we're beginning to see more activity across the value chain in terms of coordination and activity. But there's a lot more to do. The the technology is, the, the scale is small. If you look at advanced recycling compared to a cracker, there's order of magnitude difference. The feedstock supply isn't there yet. The recycling rate hasn't moved the way we'd like it to yet. And there's still risk in the economics.
1: A lot of great points, and we're going to be covering more of that as we go along. Um, You know, we're talking about partnering, and there's a lot of stakeholders in this journey um, that we're going through to achieve circularity. Bill, can you walk us around that circle and just describe the various stakeholders, um, including your own company's role.
5: Sure, happy to. Um, As we view circularity and we view plastics recycling and the changes that we feel need to take place in order to see a material increase in volumes, you mentioned feedstock availability, it is incumbent on behavior change. It's behavior change at corporations, it's behavior change at the consumer level. And it's participation, we feel, of the whole value chain of plastic. So you talk about value chain. It's the resin producers. It's the converters. It's the brands, the product companies. It's retail. is that interface with consumers. It's the consumers themselves. And then you get downstream into the waste and recycling companies. And it's not incumbent on any one of those positions within the value chain to the recycling paradigm. It's, it's really, we feel, a cooperation of the whole value chain of the, the brands and, and what they present and the consumers and how they understand it and how we educate them. And bringing more material back to the resin producers so they can get these circular products, the recycled content and the certified circular polymers that are enabling increases in recycled content. Where cyclics fits in that is looking at new ways to aggregate plastic that's currently going to the landfill, building out the infrastructure to process more plastics, more complex plastics, into feedstocks that aren't a particular piece of plastic, a a PET bottle or an HDPE jug but into combinations of plastic that meet the chemical and the physical specifications of advanced recycling. So it gets more challenging. So we're trying to get more and more plastic in at the back end of that value chain and bend that linear value chain into a circular value chain.
1: Yeah. What's the hardest part of that? Like in terms of, I think it's all hard, right? Let's be honest, it's all hard. But where do you see the biggest hurdles in trying to build that piece of the value chain? I
5: think the the hurdles fall into maybe four categories. Um, One, how do you interface with communities, with corporations, with consumers to educate them on what is possible and start them thinking differently about plastic recycling, thinking if I have this chip bag or if I have this single-use packaging, it actually can be recycled. So uh, let me take pride in Doing something with it that will happen. Um, So that's just the start. In parallel, you need new supply chains so you can bring back an all plastic stream because it's not necessarily material that is suitable for MRFs. Uh, Then you need new infrastructure to process an all plastic stream. It's a one through seven stream, it's a stream with films, with foams, and with rigids. It takes a different approach. So you're looking at at, at multiple things, new aggregation, new supply chains, new infrastructure, all of which are challenges. And on top of that, you need the education so everyone understands what's possible. So those are the four main challenges I see.
1: Big ones. We're all collaborating a lot. So, Gulai, when you think about collaboration for the plastic value chain and how BASF is approaching this... Um, what does collaboration look like and do you have any s- examples that you can share?
6: Yeah, I think that um, I can say there are two types of collaborations. Um, one is our traditional model that you work with your customer and then figure out which supplier is going to be providing you the feedstock and then you process and then qualify the product with your customer. It's quite linear, I will say, in a, in a way. But uh, if you look at the circularity, now the collaborations are also changing. um, And you kind of see the chemical companies all of a sudden having partnerships with waste uh, collectors or sorting companies. So um, the linear model is today very successful. So we have successes in BASF and all the other companies um, also have successes Finding the raw material, if it's pyrolysis oil or mechanically recycled products, and then qualify it with our customers. They are very successful models. However, they are not enough. Why? Because I think in few, um, in few of the commentaries that is mentioned, the feedstock availability, right? Uh, and in chemical industry, if we do not know of anything, we know how to solve problems because most of us are engineers. So what we recognize all of a sudden is, okay, this is great. I qualify. My customer wants it. But then we realize that, oh, hold on a minute. Uh, the pyrolysis oil, for example, in order to produce it, we don't have enough feedstock. And all of a sudden, we have to solve that problem. So then we go into the different partnership models that is beyond our uh, uh, usual partnership models, and you see in the chemical industry news that these kind of things are happening. The other part is also technologies are new. So if it's mechanical recycling, I mean, I think that we know how to manage that. It's quite established and um, accepted by the stakeholders. However, there are new technologies for recycling plastics that's pyrolysis, gasification, depolymerization, And there are new technologies. So you see many technology uh, partners or universities, research institutions coming into the place for the partnerships as well. So I think that we will see in the coming days many more of those different type of unusual partnerships, I will say, to secure the um, circular business models. Are you seeing the same thing, Jay?
4: Oh, yeah. You know, we've got... um a number of collaborations <laughs> underway, and it's a, I, I think that's the name of the game right now on this space. You know, right from, as Goulet was saying, the, the beginning of the value chain, um, you know, Bill and I were talking, what was it, two years ago about setting up Cyclics, and, you know, we, we, we made the investment and contributed to the formation of what we thought was a missing link in the, in the supply chain, you know, this translation between Um, What chemical companies want, and we speak technical ease. The waste Mm. companies speak waste ease, right? And those two are different languages. How do you match the specs? And so, you know, I I think of Bill as our Rosetta Stone on that, um, to make sure we're aligned on specs. Um, And understand the sorting things. Um, We've got collaborations that are, um, we've got a fantastic collaboration going on right now in the city of Houston, actually. Um, Community uh, North. Kingwood, um, if you guys know where that is. Um, we we're, work we're, with Bill's help. Um, we're collecting all plastics. I mean, we need simple solutions in this space. And we've gone into that community and say, if it looks and feels and, you know, don't taste it, but tastes like plastic, then put it all in a bag. Don't, don't, we don't, we don't want to educate people to be material scientists out there. It needs to be simple, clear messages to consumers, all right? So this one through seven stuff is, it's helpful to a certain extent until it's not. And it's not when it confuses customers and consumers. And so we're, in that pilot, we're saying, put all your plastics in a bag, bring it to the drop-off, and we'll handle it. And I think that's, um, we're up, what, two or three times the collection rate since we launched the program. Mm-hmm. One small program, but how many times can we, we duplicate that across the, um, across the country? I think there's, you know, the other part of this is, is policy as well. I mean, we need to get to a good policy. I, I think, you know, across the country, we have, you know, 50% of the population that doesn't even have access to a recycling bin, mm-hmm. right? Well, if you live in the, if you're in a multifamily residence in Houston, you have no recycling, right? We can't get feedstock if there's no basic infrastructure to collect the stuff in the first place. And so I, I think you know then on top of that, there's probably five thousand different recycling programs across the country, so we need some consistency, we need access at a population level, and we need um, clear education what consumers respond to and I think you know as one company we 're trying to participate in that, you know uh, together with others and you know, through collaborations. And it's a bit more uncomfortable because I think in those large chemical companies and petrochemical companies, we haven't been used to engaging directly with the public on some of these, these issues. And so that's, that's an area where we're starting to learn.
1: Yeah. I mean, recycling is such a challenge. In fact, as I was reflecting today as we were getting ready for this, even just looking around the conference today, I mean, show of hands, how many people have been recycling? their plastic water bottles, right? Versus leaving them on the table or throwing them in the trash. And in fact, I was in a meeting yesterday, I said, oh, well, how do we recycle? Well, I think the hotel takes care of that. (laughs) Do they? Do we know? And so I think this is, you know, the system and the system needs to be easier. Yep. To your point, right? And that's probably the biggest thing is that we need it to be easier. What other hurdles are you seeing, Bill, or anyone else? What other hurdles do you see to increasing recycling rates?
5: So one of the biggest challenges, especially as it relates to advanced recycling, is we're going after material that isn't collected today.
1: Yep. Such as it's
5: not the, the material that's going to the murphs. It's the multi-layer films. Yeah. It's the packaging that isn't PET. Maybe it has an oxygen barrier on it. Maybe it's uh, not natural in color, even the black plastics. But it's those plastics that don't fit, I want the PET drink bottle or I want the HDPE jug. So as you start looking for those plastics, they're not in the recycle stream. So we need to expand the collection, and in doing so, it needs to be done with a very simple message. And that's the focus of our branded 10 to 90 initiatives that Dave mentioned. We're, we're rolling out in Kingwood all plastics. Bag it and bring it. If it's plastic, put it in a bag and bring it. And we now have, with the advances in sortation technologies, optical and other, the ability to move that decision of what piece of plastic goes where downstream to automated infrastructure. We no longer have to rely on the consumer to say, does it go in this bucket, or does it go in that bucket? And we can simplify everything and push that processing downstream.
1: Yeah, and I, but I, it still is, uh, I, I see that it, there's still a lot of activation energy needed, right? So when I think about curbside recycling, right, and we've already said a lot of people don't have that as an option. That's the easiest. If I could just roll it out to my curb, but when I have to package it and bundle it and take it someplace, we've now introduced a challenge, right?
5: A number of the initiatives we're focused on are focused on making that easier. Utilize corporate take-back programs. Work with corporations so employees can bring material back to a corporate location, aggregate that material. Work through retail. We recently announced initiatives with the Houston School District to work not just on aggregating plastic from the schools, but on education of the children and, in turn, education of their parents in the communities. We can start bringing back material to support education, structure it as a fundraiser for the schools but make it easy for people to participate both in the decisions they have to make and the ability to drop it off.
1: Um, So we've already talked about that there's demand for uh, circular plastics, plastics that have recycled content. Are companies and and consumers willing to pay yet? What are you guys seeing from this? (laughs) It's a loaded question. I'm just going to leave it out there.
3: I'm happy to swing oh, at that based sure, well, on published data, one, but yeah. I actually, I just want to add a little bit to perhaps what Bill was saying before about recycling rates. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the headline plastic recycling rate, which in the U.S. in 2018 was about 9%. Yeah. But if you decompose that, uh, it actually varies quite a bit. And if you look at plastic bottles, it's about three times higher. And that recycling system works. It's not great, but it, it works. And, you know, it's on the same order of magnitude as glass bottles or, or aluminum cans are a little higher, but they're mostly beverages. They get more refunds. So that, it's, we're not really fixing that part of the system. We're fixing the part of the system that has the low single-digit recycling rate, like the films and the flexibles and the carpets and that sort of thing. And I think some of that, at least for us, just helps to contextualize some of the conversation we just had. Yeah, helpful. In terms of premium, that's something we look at quite a bit. And uh, I know we need to be careful about pricing, but there are published series for recycled plastic, and we often look at those published series and we compare them to virgin. And the most interesting example that we find is for the uh, polyethylene, the high-density polyethylene. There's a series for mechanical recycled natural, which is the milk bottles. And in the world of mechanical recycling, that's the best you can do. And that is going at a premium of about 100% over Virgin. And it's been going that way since about mid-2019. So we're three and a half, four years into a period of very significant premium that we think have a, a meaningful impact on the value chain.
1: You know, I think there's a lot of talk about consumers and consumer brands what role are they playing? What role is the brand playing in helping us expand that recycling activity, the recycling content? What do you see, Bill? We
5: see a growing interest from the brands. The brands perhaps historically have tried to distance themselves from plastic. Um, it's, it's a product we use, but it's, it's not our fault. Um, there's As we start talking about value chain, we start talking about everyone working together, about collaboration. The brands are beginning to come into that. Um, From a consumer standpoint, the single-use plastics are used by consumers. Individuals are making the decision at the corporations to spend more time focusing on ESG. That's why we're here today, is because of individuals who are consumers, who are making decisions about how you want to deal with plastics going forward the brands have a voice with consumers so getting the brands integrated into these collaborations into the conversation about recycling is is critical both from an influence standpoint but also they can provide incentives through coupons or others to, to get people to bring back the material and the packaging and the products that they're if they're using that are plastic
1: awesome I how about you? Do you see, I mean, the consumer products companies, other companies um, are pursuing their own paths in many ways. Um, is this a hindrance or is this a help? Is there an opportunity to really collaborate and team up together to, is there a receptiveness to this?
6: I, I certainly believe this is a help. Uh, and I think that we are in, in the chemical industry we usually do business to business to business. We don't do business to consumer. So we look for um, OEMs or consumer, big OEMs, uh, companies, to tell us that they, that's what they need. So then we can put all these investments to create these new chemistries or new products so, I don't see it as an obstacle. I actually see it's a positive development for the chemical industry. What um, can be a hindrance is all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, pulling themselves out of the, let's say, plastic. We use these materials, but we will do deselection. Um, that I, I believe that they might um, give it a try, but we all know. Uh, plastic provides different properties, different functionalities than other packaging materials that I don't think is, it is going to be a success, successful adventure, um, but that, that could be maybe one, one uh, hinder for the, for the chemical industry.
1: Yeah, certainly. And I know in in certain brands, and they tend to be maybe more elite brands, I I think of it sometimes as being a rich person problem. Like, okay, yeah, I mean, you can go to the really expensive product where they only want it in a glass bottle, or it's only got to be a certain type of recycled plastic. But I also think that ends up... At the moment, being very niche, um, and that the majority of the population isn't willing to spend the money on it, is, is happy with where they're at, et cetera.
6: Some, some of it also a little bit marketing, and that's where I think chemical companies are not, we are not marketing companies, we are engineering and manufacturing companies, and this is where I think our biggest handicap ourselves, because you know, they say, you say paper cup, for example most of the paper cups are covered with polyethylene. It's a plastic in it, but consumer, normal consumer, usual consumer thinks that they're using a paper cup, but actually they are not. You know, there is a plastic layer in the cups for coffee cups, for example. So we right now are doing a lot of this education, let's educate, you hear it multiple times, also in the other panels as well. We did a lot and innovate a lot but we but we didn't do very well is explaining that once you wake up in your 24 hour you touch a lot of chemistries and plastics and that makes your daily life easy makes your life modern and we just didn't educate the consumers about that. Now we are I mean, it's a bit suffering from that because somebody comes and says, let's ban the plastics and you are scratching your head. How is it gonna even happen? What are you gonna sit on? What are you gonna slip on? What are you gonna drive? And what are you gonna wear as a contact lens or use a diaper? I mean, that's what we are struggling against a little bit right now.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. We have not told our story very well. Yeah. Um and we need to continue. I think really working on it. I personally think really in a grassroots way and and people have heard me talk about this. I mean, the chemical industry is not embracing TikTok or Instagram Reels and the reality is our <laughs> our competitor a lesser educated consumers sometimes sometimes it's the NGOs, sometimes it's just The voice, especially the voice with the younger generations, I mean, I have four girls, they spend a lot of time on social media, TikTok, Instagram reels and stuff. That's where they get their news and their information. Then they come to me and they say, oh, well, this is bad. I'm like, Well, says who? And, oh, by the way, you give me back all my money because that's how yeah. you have what you have. And,
6: and we, we talk about it in your um, last podcast on yeah. the generations. I also have a son from that generation. And we know that they think different, they buy different, they have more consciousness on sustainable, which are great things. So they're going to be our politicians in 10 years' time frame. They're going to be buyers for the companies that we are selling today. And um, so the, I think the phase of the chemical industry is about to change, and we all know that. This, this is why this excitement in this conference and, or others about let's educate, let's try, let's innovate, let's do something different, let's go circular. And I think it's kind of exciting to be in the industry right now.
1: I, I agree with you, and I think that was covered this morning as well during the CEO panel. They said, you know, this is a great time to join the industry, to Be part of the solutions, the innovation and the growth, et cetera. So, Jeremy, I know McKinsey's published a paper recently talking about um, advanced recycling and that there were some must win battles for advanced recycling. So, maybe two things. One, give us a brief definition, if you will, of advanced recycling. And then, what are those battles and what's the outlook for winning that?
6: Sure.
3: So, let me try to hit on both of those and, and actually, again, I just kind of want to, before we go into that, we, we talked a lot about the brands. And the brands have made very significant commitments to incorporating recycled content into their products, typically on the order of 15 to 50%, 5-0% uh, by the middle of this decade. They're reporting out every year and they're investing real resourcing behind that to make it happen. And, I think there's an argument that a great deal of what we're seeing and doing and experiencing in the plastics industry to meet that demand is a result of those commitments. So I just kind of wanted to start there. And then if we come to advanced recycling, you know, what what is it? It's different things to different people. It's probably everything that's not grinding it up and repelletizing it. And uh, there's a range of technologies that are being developed uh, more or less at scale today a few of the more important ones, you can take plastics and go back to what you might call feedstock, which would be like a pyrolysis. To go back to a naphtha, you can put it through a cracker. There's a, a range of depolymerization technologies where you can unzip molecules like PET or polystyrene. You can take them back to monomers and then you can repolymerize them. And then there's some other things being developed with enzymes or with uh, solvents that also have the property of producing a very high quality output with a range of, of feedstocks. We are seeing a tremendous amount of investment in the space and we're seeing a lot of growth. And you know, We could see by the end of the decade you know, north of 7 million tons of advanced recycling capacity. And, and so then coming back a little bit to, to your question of, of what are the battles, uh, we, we see three or four. Uh, I think the first one several of my colleagues here have touched on, which is feedstock. And, you know, what I think we've all learned is if you want 10,000 tons of feedstock, you can get it. If you want 100,000 tons or 500,000 tons of feedstock, you need to build a system around it. And the industry is evolving in that direction, but it's taking a lot of work. I think the next one is these partnerships that we talked about. You know, it's no longer pulling hydrocarbons out of the ground, running it through a machine that you own, and it comes out the other end. It's, as Dave mentioned, partnerships with the waste industry, with municipalities, It's really this end-to-end collaboration. Uh, I think the third one is around scale. And, you know, if you look at what's being done today, at least the advanced recycling projects we see are often in the range of, call it, 15 to 50,000 tons. And a a world-scale cracker is more than an order of magnitude larger than that. And so there's just a a natural scaling and learning curve, which the only reason we haven't done it yet is because we haven't done it yet. We just have to build up to it, but it's going to take some time. And then I think the last one is around the economics. And, you know, we, we see the economics very much as, as there today, and we think it's been there for the last three or four years, but it depends on a number of things, including the brand owners sticking with these commitments to basically put their resources behind using recycled content. And so there's a reasonable amount of risk, and, and de-risking that will help accelerate.
1: Awesome. So how do we scale or how and when do we really start achieving scale, right? So we've been talking about this advanced recycling, circular plastics is a pretty small part of the overall pool of plastics. How do we start achieving true scale and you know what conditions must exist for that to be the case? Bill, can you tackle that?
5: Sure. Well one (laughs) is feedstock. And, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned 7 million tons. We've seen projections in the, the 10 to 20 to 40 million tons by the uh, end of the decade, which is that's beginning to become a volume that's material to chemical production. It is big for chemical, big new for chemical. It is huge for waste. There is a very big, big discrepancy in scale between the waste industry in the petrochemical industry. If you look at waste processing facilities, they're not billions of pounds a year. Uh, especially as you talk about plastic, a MRF may be 100 KTA, but only 10 to 15% of that is plastic. So when you start looking at aggregating plastic to feed a 100 or a 200 KTA facility, that's a lot of plastic. It's a lot of innovation on the front end to aggregate that It's a lot of transportation to bring it in where it can all be used. So one, we have to get over the feedstock scale issue in order to get to meaningful scale for advanced recycling. When does advanced recycling, recycled content, circular polymer, when does that become real? I think it becomes real where the consumer actually has a choice in product. So it's not just the premium products, but they can see labeling and messaging on a shelf with a choice for them. Uh, At that point, consumers will understand the value of it, they'll see it, they'll be able to make choices. Now, between now and the end of the decade, we're on that journey of investing in infrastructure uh, for feedstock, for the downstream advanced recycling processing, pulling that back into circular products. At some point in the next few years, we'll start getting to that point, but we still have some, some work to do and a lot of investment.
6: But I think that we are forgetting something super important in between the two of the lists. Legislations today do not accept advanced recycling as recycling. So that's so I think the one of the major acceptance um, challenges or hurdles that we have I was surprised uh, couldn't see it in your list but I think that that we have to get through that. Mm. Today in US 22 states are uh, accepting advanced recycling technologies as recycling and we have a lot more to go to make this work. So then it's a bit chicken and an egg situation because without legislations or acceptance you don't want to put uh, or invest in the infrastructure, all that innovation you mentioned, all that sorting facilities and everything, and then um, obviously um, legislation is not coming without you show the proof. So it's a bit yep. an interesting situation to be in right now.
1: Yep. Yeah, it is a dilemma, right? I mean, Correct. and I think I know that AFPM and ACC, in the industry partners, are working actively to try to create that support. Um, with and, you know, there's the uh, UN Treaty on Plastics, which is also in, you know, in play at the moment. Um, and it's not clear to me how advanced recycling fits into that at all. Um, but, but I think you're right. The, uh, the legislative base is critical.
4: And, and I think, you know, building on that point, we need all of these technologies. Right. You know, I, I think Lark Williams in the previous... Um, presentation that we were listening to, you know, the, the lead U.S. negotiator on the, uh, the U.N. Plastics Treaty, um, said it pretty clearly. I mean, we don't want to block the kick of innovation, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be invented here to solve this problem, and picking and choosing winners and losers in terms of technology now and, and through legislation is the worst thing we could do. You know, we need to be encouraging, you um, You know, so we need to be encouraging legislation that embraces technology so that, you know, that chip bag that's got that aluminum foil on it that can't be recycled mechanically today can be recycled because we have the technology to do it.
1: I think it's a great point, and I think, uh, you know, there's stats that are given around the energy transition, and I think circularity, I'll I'll group it all in together, that something like two-thirds of the technologies that we need to achieve our ambitious goals have not yet been developed. So we need the space to continue to innovate, to try new things, to um, get to the next technology, the next partnership, the next solutions, because we don't know what the answer really is 50 years from now. We know what today's answer is and how we're gonna keep developing it.
4: Yeah, and I I think, um we have to be careful that we don't use technology as a crutch here, though, because we do have technologies available today, yeah. and we need to get them deployed. I mean, Goulet's absolutely right that, you know, if there's legislation that actively says you can't use the technology, that's a big problem, because that's a huge risk to investment. Mm-hmm. So we need to work that from, you know, the, the 22 states that have accepted advanced recycling, fantastic, but well, we need to work on the other half of the states yeah. that are on the fence or haven't. And, and that's a real priority. But um, I think it's really important as an industry that we take action, right? We can't, you know, this can't be a science experiment forever. We need to build and we need to to lead and we need to get technology deployed because we have the capability to do that and create that pull on the supply chain and create that valorization of the waste so that we pull it through and create these new new, uh, supply chains.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. There's a saying that um Imperfect action beats perfect inaction. If we wait till we get to the perfect solution, we'll never have a solution. Yeah. So, Dave, ExxonMobil has announced some plans to scale up advanced recycling, up to a billion pounds per year. You know, maybe you've already, we've already addressed this, but what are the challenges that you see? Are there anything uh, unique or that we haven't yet touched on?
4: Yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a whole bunch of challenges in there. Um, you know, just to put a bit of context into it, uh, we started up a, an advanced recycling facility in Baytown, Texas, um, in December last year, which, uh, has got an annual capacity of about 40,000 tons, 80 million pounds of plastic. And that, that's running. You know, we've got that running and that's, um, that's successful and Bill's a good supplier and, we're, we're we're very grateful for the feed that we're getting, but that's not enough. So we're we're repeating that investment around the world. In fact, we've got um, you know projects across the Gulf Coast, in in Beaumont and Baton Rouge, and one up in Chicago, and you know, kind of Sarnia, Canada, Antwerp, Rotterdam, Singapore, collaboration over in Malaysia, Indonesia. So there's about 14 projects that we've got in various discre- degrees of development around the world. Um, and some of those, and one in France as well. I mean, we're also investing in, uh, in partners that are using conventional pyrolysis oil technology as well. And we're trying to push that forward. Um, I think, and my team will kill me for this, but I think the, the easiest part of that, quite frankly, is the engineering at our sites, right? That we know how to do that. We know how to build reactors. We know how to build, you know, kind of, we, we know how to do the heat and material balance around facilities. Um, you know, it's a bit tricky, it's a different feedstock and there's contaminants. But the big challenge is, and we've said it a few times, is, is that supply chain into it. it. It's it's not defined, the qualities aren't defined. We're having tr- trouble writing the specs. Um, even the contracting practices. Um, the way that the, the waste industry contracts is completely different than the way the petrochemical industry contracts. They're looking for different risk mitigation, right? Um, and we're starting to learn these things as we go forward. And and I think, you know, as we've looked at it, one of the reasons why we as a company have picked, you know, kind of let's say 30, 40 KTA units is not because we want to be small at that size. If you go much bigger, you, you, you're, you just can't get the feedstock. Mm-hmm. And if you can't start with some kind of scale, you've got underutilized assets, and that's not economic. So I, I think... I think these early stage investments, you see them around that 30, 40, 50 KTA region because it's a measure of where the supply chain is. It's not necessarily a measure of where the conversion technology is.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you guys find that the waste management companies, and they're, they're not represented here today, but do you find that they have the same sense of urgency that we have in the chemical industry? to create solutions to solve this. Are are they feeling it as well?
5: I would say no, not right now, right? They're not defending a market. They're not under fire because they're producing plastics and they have to find a solution. Their business model historically has been to take something, get paid to take it and put it in the ground. And they generate great returns by doing that. We're beginning to see investments by waste companies in, in recycling, mechanical, and looking at other feedstock, uh, advanced feedstocks as well. So I think they're getting there, but I don't think that they feel the pain and have the sense of urgency that uh, the resin producers do for sure.
4: I, I, think, I agree. I think there's a transition there. I, I think, um, I hold out hope that you know, conversations at least I've had in the last few months, you know, let's say 6 to 12 months, I think it is changing. I think there's a recognition that um, there's, opportunity, there's business opportunity there. I mean, the supply chain is seeing a, mm-hmm. a critical gap in supply and demand, and it's echoing down the supply chain. And so, um, you know, I think we had a great conversation with waste management a couple of weeks ago at the recycling conference in D.C. Um, very refreshing in terms of their outlook on it and and how they... You know, i trying to think about you know recycling and feeding the advanced recycling industry um, as an as an opportunity, and awesome. I, and I think that's great. But it, but I do think it's a relatively recent phenomena.
3: Can I just I just want yeah. to try to yeah. at the risk of either building or echoing this this idea of a business opportunity every step of the chain, we see is absolutely critical. And, you know, clearly sitting here in San Antonio in the petrochemical industry, we know it's a big opportunity. But it only works if the feedstock arrives, which means the folks that participate in the feedstock need the business opportunity. It's going to have some implications for the municipalities. It has implications for the brands on the other end. It's got to make business sense for everybody through the chain or the chain breaks. And I think collectively we're, we're making progress towards some alignment around that. It's taking time.
1: Yeah. And I guess in some ways that's where some of the policy opportunities perhaps fit in and you know there's a, I know there's always a variety of things on the table and and we're not here to debate <laughs> policy. <laughs> not, we're, we're not in, you know, I'm certainly not empowered to do that. Um, but I think that's, that you're right, I mean the, there needs to be some structural um, support in whatever shape that looks like across the value chain to make sure that the economics are there across the value chain. So when we look at, um, you know, if we contrast what we're doing in the U.S. versus Europe, it it often feels like Europe is ahead of the U.S. on these green issues, sustainability, recycling, et cetera. there's a perception that perhaps it's been easier to get permits for advanced recycling in Europe or it's been easier to make progress in Europe um, just because of the legislative infrastructure there. What lessons can we take? Is that true? And how do we, how do we learn from what's happening across the pond and bring it back here? You like?
6: um, so I think that... A year or maybe two years ago, EU Green uh, Initiative is published. It was, you know, thousands of pages. But when you look at um, packaging space, what what they uh, want to do uh, recently, by uh, 2030 in Europe, Union, Every plastic, uh, pack- or every packaging material, it's not, sorry, it's not for package plastic. Every packaging has to be recyclable. So that includes all the multi-layer films and everything, or it's gonna be banned. So if you're a plastic producer, you have to kind of make sure that your product is recycled. If you're an OEM doing, you know, selling food or, um, some, some different packaging with the multi-layer structures, you have to make sure that this is, this is gonna be recyclable. So the pressure is coming from the legislation standpoint, and that's why that I think there's a little bit sense of urgency. I wouldn't say that they are ahead of us on the technology sense, but definitely there is sense of urgency to handle that. And this packaging is now um, going into the different industries as well. If you look at the automotive space, they also expect every plastic material in an automotive that we use has to be recyclable. So the design of the automotive um, has to be done accordingly, but also the parts has to be recyclable. So it's, again... that we have to watch very carefully because most of our customers are global. We cannot just ignore what happens in Europe. However, I see more of the government making decisions on behalf of the industry in there and then putting legislation super strongly with limits and bans and um, taxations. Compared to in United States, you see more of a um, incentivizing to doing the right thing. So it's a bit different approach, and I think that we're all happy to be in US uh, from that standpoint. Um, what um, I think is gonna be critical is, since uh, this packaging uh, uh, act in EU also goes for sensible packaging materials, meaning the medical, for example, packaging, um, that requires advanced recycling technologies and mass balance approach to be accepted as recycling. Because that, that there's no way of multi-layer or multi-material uh, plastics to be recycled any other way than the advanced recycling. So it might actually trigger uh, a positive movement for acceptance of mass balance and advanced recycling in United States if Europe takes the lead on that a little bit for us.
1: I think it's a great, uh, a great point and I think we've seen this on a variety of topics that when Europe has led the way in certain requirements, legislative requirements, Correct. because we are global companies and global businesses that they it's a pull through, a pull through effect. Mm-hmm. On it. Show me the money. Jeremy, you started touching on this. Is, at the end of the day, everybody needs to be making money. We all want to make money. Everybody along the value chain wants to make money. Um, is there actually a financial business case for circularity?
3: So I, I think in a word, yes, but let me offer a little bit more. Okay. Um, I, I think first of all, to, to, to restate the question perhaps, you, you need a business case to invest at scale. Otherwise, you're doing pilot projects. And, and I don't think really we're interested in sitting around doing pilot projects. And, and I think the good news is we've seen that business case in many places, but not all of them across the chain. And I think if we look, that sort of well explains where we are seeing scaled activity. So mechanical recycling has made sense for a while, and it continues to work. We're seeing some pivot within mechanical recycling to higher-value applications, to food-grade RPET, to some of the high-value film and flexibles. We're seeing probably the most activity on pyrolysis and related technologies because there's a real shortage of high-value recycled polyolefins, and there's this huge premia mentioned. We're seeing some activity in advanced recycling of RPET, but at least in the published data, the premium is very modest, if at all, because mechanical recycling works well. And so that isn't scaling nearly as quickly. We're seeing the, the premia move back in the chain. If you look at things like bail pricing, And that, we believe, is driving a lot of the activity from the waste companies that Dave and Bill touched on, which, you know, we would say is good and appropriate and helpful, and that's the investment we need. Um, But, you know, if you come back to the principle, you say, look, every step in the value chain needs to have an appropriate economic incentive. In a lot of places, we are. But I did want to just offer a couple where we're not that I think still remains challenges. And, And one is consumer behavior, and the other is access. And on consumer behavior, you know, for most of us, the economic implication of whether we put it in the green bin or not is zero. There are some cities where there is an economic implication and the results are markedly different. But for many cases, it's zero. And then for access, you'd say, well look, you know, plastic is worth more, we should go collect it from more homes. But it's only five five or 10% of the stream. And so when you run the economics of the trucks, it doesn't help enough. And so those are two places where it hasn't quite made it yet.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. So, you know, we've covered a lot of ground today. We're kind of approaching the end of our time, so glad everybody's been sticking with us and appreciate everybody's point of view and perspectives here today. Um, What's one takeaway, action, or talking point that people that are here listening today um, can do to support the industry, plastic circularity, advanced recycling, et cetera? Let's start with Dave.
4: I go right to the consumer side of this. We're all consumers, right? And we all have an accountability in this equation to do the right thing when it comes to recycling. And, you know, um, my kids teach me most of the time what I'm supposed to be doing uh, because they learn it before I do. Um, in fact, uh, you know, last week I saw, I saw for the first time this thing, a TikTok scientist. I really want to be a TikTok scientist. Well, first I got to get a TikTok account, so that's that's one thing. But 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 I think that you know you got to learn we got to learn how to do this right. Um, I think you know as I said before, fifty percent of the North American households don't have access to a recycling program. That's because the municipality that they're living in isn't providing it. So get involved and go and ask for that, right? Go and get involved with your... This is a very, very local issue, right? Recycling programs are paid for at the city level and the municipality level in most places in the country. And it behooves us all the citizens to ask for that and demand that as a service when we don't have it. So I, I think it's, you know, consumer action. I think when it comes to our, you know, professional lives as an industry, we've got to act. Right? We, we have got to act and we have got to embrace uh, these trends that we're seeing, our customers are demanding these products from them, and we have got to put our foot forward um, and start investing and create the pull down the supply chain and lead, quite frankly, um, in solving this issue.
5: Thank
6: you. Bill?
5: One takeaway from this would be talk about it. Talk about plastic recycling. Um, Education is one of our biggest challenges, and education can be overcome through dialogue. We are within the industry. We have perhaps more uh, insights into what's actually going on. Maybe they're biased, maybe they're not. A lot of the conversations won't be with people who have the same view, but if we can listen to them, if we can share our thoughts, maybe they'll learn a bit Maybe we'll learn a bit and we'll start this dialogue about plastic recycling moving down the the tracks and begin to have more people think, if I ask the right question of my municipality, of the local waste companies, maybe we can start making a change in plastic recycling.
6: Other than the education, I think it's a great point. I will say believe in chemistry, believe in innovation, because chemical industry r- solve a lot of problems. And I think that we are being a little bit um, suspicious. We have non-believers, uh, and I don't know for what reason. We do have critics, um, and these are all normal, but we all have to believe in the power of chemistry and power uh, of innovation. And um, if you look at uh, what chemical industry achieve, what products they bring to uh, our modern life, this will be just one another. But innovation takes time, so together with that, I think a little bit patience and a bit positive thinking will help.
1: Awesome.
3: Jeremy. Yes. I think at least one takeaway when we look at it, this may be a unique moment in time. This really may be a tipping point. And if you think back to what this state went through a decade ago, you know, it took us two or three years of very attractive returns in U.S. shale gas. 2009, 2012, you saw this huge wave of investment. We're now three or four years in, very attractive returns. We're seeing this wave of investment. And it's quite possible that we'll look back in seven years, and we'll say 2023 was the tipping point. And that's really when the industry began scaling circularity.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining this discussion. Thank you everyone for um, listening in and participating. And uh, this will be published in a couple of weeks on the chemical show. If you're not listening, go listen. And you know, my takeaway is tell your story. I mean, that's what I tell everyone is tell your story about the benefits of chemicals, about the benefits of the industry, about the opportunity to recycle and make a difference. And we need grassroots action. Thanks. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.